0: Thank you, Reese. Um, Thanks to everybody who has been reading the passages these last few weeks. They've been long. And they're Old Testament passages, so there's a good chance there's going to be words in there that you can't pronounce properly. So I'm sure that those who had signed up, you know, they... They were just afraid when they saw that email. You're on for scripture reading this week. And they saw the, the number of verses they had to read. And they went, oh no, it's from Chronicles. Oh no, it's from Samuel. I'm going to have to take a course in Hebrew pronunciation. But everybody's done well, very well. And uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. A couple of things I didn't mention at the beginning of the service that I should have. There's been a couple of babies born lately. And I just want to acknowledge that. Little Amaya Koning has been born to Matt and Adriana. Uh, big sister Charlotte is very excited, and we congratulate them on the birth of their little one. And then uh, we also want to celebrate with uh, Eric and Alexa Wiltshire, who uh, welcomed Cora May this last week. And from what I understand, she also is doing well. She's not here this morning, though, I don't think. Okay, so you don't get to look at her yet, but it'll come. Anyway, praise God for these things, hey? Eh? Uh, You can see also we're doing a new thing. My number is up there already so that if you think of questions that you want to ask, you can text them to me during the sermon. Um, Well, don't text it to me during the sermon. That will distract me because of my Apple Watch. But you can write it out in your phone and then text me at the end of the sermon so that it's here already. Because I know that when we ask if there are any questions, sometimes people need a little time to uh, formulate their question and then the opportunity is lost so that's the other thing i wanted to talk about the third thing i wanted to say before we start is you heard that scripture reading and you thought wow how perfectly does that fit thanksgiving you know talking about everything being gods and then of course the pastor will make appeals for us to be really really generous etc ah we're smart over here at grace valley eh? we we figure out our our series and we make sure we hit the high notes at the at the right time i gotta be honest with you there was no forethought to this at all this is just the last sermon in the series on david and it happened to be about something that fits so nicely with thanksgiving so uh no i'd like to say i have a grand agenda but that would be untrue here's here's where we're going to begin you know um We've been following the life of David for weeks and weeks. Actually, we started this in June, so it's been a long time. For months, we've been following the life of David, and we've seen him go from being a shepherd, a lowly shepherd, to the greatest king that Israel ever saw. We've walked through the peaks of his life along with the valleys of his life. Uh, we've, we've seen the glory that he knew uh, in his righteous moments, and we've also seen the, the, the legacy of David being tarnished by his sin. We've seen the blessings that God has bestowed on him because of his faithfulness, but we've also seen the consequences of those, those sins uh, that he committed over the course of his life. And now, we're at the end of David's life, pretty much. Now, we, there's lots that we didn't cover because, like I said, David's life is the, only, is the second most uh, storied life in the Bible. We, we get more about Jesus than David, but we don't get more about anybody else uh, because David was such a central figure in the plan of God's redemption. So there's First and Second Samuel, all about him, but there's also the book of Chronicles. And that's, that's where we are today. We're, we're near the end of David's life, and we're returning to what you could call David's unrealized dream. He's near the end of his life he's always wanted to build a temple a house for god but unfortunately that has not been realized and so throughout his campaign as king david has had this in his head i want a house for the lord i want a temple for the lord i want a place for the lord and the question we want to ask this morning is why what was so important about this temple why was this the thing that david was so bound and determined to make happen why did he want to build this temple we're going to look at our need for a temple the cost of a temple and the fulfillment of a temple that's what we're going to look at this morning those three things so first of all why did david want to build this temple in the first place is this some kind of legacy thing you know when you go to uh Juravinsky Hospital, where you go to DeGroote School of Business, you know, these, these rich, wealthy people, they put their name on something so that they have this legacy that will outlive them, or at least so they think. Was this about David's ego? Absolutely not. The answer to that question is, is given to us by David himself. In, in the first passage that we read, he says this. In verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 28 king david rose to his feet and said listen to me my fellow israelites my people i had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the lord david says he wants to build this place of rest for the ark of the covenant now in order for us to understand what he's getting at we have to understand what this ark thing is all about and some of you are old enough to remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, so you know what the Ark looks like. For those of you who are too young to know that movie, I'll explain it to you. The Ark was, was a box that God told Moses to build many, many centuries before. And it was in, overlaid with gold, and it had this gold slab on the top of it that was called the mercy seat. And then it had two angels carved out of gold on top, Facing the center, they were called the cherubim. And this ark was meant to sit all the time in the tabernacle that was the tent that that was God's house for the people of Israel as they were traveling through the desert on their way from Egypt to Canaan. They had tents that they lived in. Well, God had a tent too, and they would put set this thing up. It was called the tabernacle, and it had these three sections to it, and the, the, the innermost section was called the holiest of holies, or the most holy place, and that's where the ark sat all the time. And only once a year could the high priest enter that most holy place on yom kippur which actually was just this past week for those of you who are paying attention uh the day of atonement where he would sprinkle blood of a killed lamb on this mercy seat on this ark of the covenant for the sins of god's people and when he did that then above this slab of gold called the mercy seat The Shekinah glory of God, that is, the presence of God would settle there. This is the holy, transcendent, royal, shining presence of God himself. And the reason that it happened this way was because of sin. Sin is our rebellion against god our refusal to let god be god and want to stand in his place in our lives god is the one who determines what is right and wrong what is good and what is bad what is what is profitable for us in the way we live and what is not profitable but we in our sinful nature we rebel against that we say i want to be in charge and i know what's best for me and i know how to run the show in fact i probably know how to run the show better than you and our rebellion against god creates this gap between us and God. It cuts us off from him. And when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, then the presence of God would come down because the sacrifice uh, overcame the gap, overcame this, this gulf between God and us. And therefore, the ark represents the presence of God. Okay? So what? Well, here's the so what. When David says, I want to build a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant, he's not talking about building a monument for himself. When he's talking about building this temple, what he wants for his people as he faces the end of his life, don't forget, what he wants for the people of Israel is that they would know and experience and enjoy the presence of the transcendent, holy Righteous, glorious God who made the heavens and the earth. That's what he wants. This is David's deep desire that that his people would not just know that God is out there, but that they would have his presence in their very lives. The people needed God's presence. And the thesis this morning is, you and I, every human being that walks the face of the earth, Desperately, desperately needs the presence of God in our lives. So the temple itself, it represented, if I can put it this way, the the crossroads between heaven and earth. It represented the place where the divine, the eternal, the transcendent would meet the mortal, the temporal, the fleshy parts of this physical, physical world that's the place where where god's presence was mediated now we're modern people and the modern people they hear stories like this and this need for temples and the presence of god and all this kind of stuff and they think you know it's kind of silly that's so that's that's like ancient practices that's that's the kind of thing that that people who didn't don't live in a modern, educated, scientific age like ourselves would need. But we don't need that kind of thing. And here's the interesting thing. Over the last 20 years, and certainly over the last 10 years, I don't know if you know this, but there are all kinds of renewal movements in old religions and all kinds of new religions being created all over the place. I know that the the church in North America is shrinking and it's waning, but it is growing by leaps and bounds in other parts of the world, in almost every other part of the world. It's North America, Western Europe, some parts of Eastern Europe where it is dying, but virtually everywhere else in the world, the Christian religion is on the rise. And in In North America as well, when you do demographic studies of people who are between the ages of 50 and 80 or 60 and 80 or something like that, they're they're not really interested in religion, so it seems, but the, the younger you get, the more interested in spirituality, in spiritual things, people become. So that by the time you reach Gen Z people, like that's my kid's age, you know, teenagers and young adults, they're actually hungering, hungering for some kind of spirituality beyond what they see with their physical eyes see this is what's going on we are coming out of what's called the enlightenment period so for the last 200 years or so maybe a little bit longer people said you know what we can use science reason the empirical method to answer all the important questions of life we don't we don't need religion, we don't need temples, okay, we've got labs. And what's interesting is, is, is that they said, yeah, we've got community service, we've got scientific research, we've got democracy, we're modern nations, but here we are at 2022, and we live in currently the richest the healthiest and the wealthiest generation in all of human history which also at the exact same time has more anxiety, more depression, more neuroses, more sci- uh, s- suicidal ideation than any generation in history. And it is remarkable to me as I watch over the last five, ten years how the so-called Enlightenment Project, you remember Do you remember in 2008-ish, there was a guy named Richard Dawkins who wrote a book called The God Delusion, and what he wrote in that book was basically, we don't need God, there's no such thing as God, God doesn't exist, we have science, all that enlightenment stuff, and the Christian church is freaking out and going, oh no, we've got to defend ourselves against these new atheists and their attempt to destroy religion and destroy the transcendent, etc., Here we are, 15 years later, and nobody thinks about Richard Dawkins anymore. Why? Because this Enlightenment project that promised us that we would be able to create a utopia here on this earth simply by virtue of using our our minds and our our commitment to human nature and its inherent goodness— has proven to be false, has proven to be an absolute abject failure. And now people are waking up and they're saying, I've got my iPhone, I've got my TV on demand, I've got my fridge full of exotic fruits and vegetables like avocados and stuff. (laughs) And I'm still not happy. There's got to be something more to all of this. Well, what's going on? Well, friends, you were made for more than just earth. You were made for heaven too. You know this deep down inside when there is a longing in you that simply cannot be satisfied by even the best things this world has to offer. Nobody has said it better than C.S. Lewis, of course. And he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. The temple is the presence of God We need the presence of God because we were created to be in fellowship with him. There is a longing and a desire in us that no earthly pleasure can ever satisfy because we're not just made for earth, we're made for heaven too. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, what's what's the cost? What's the cost of having this temple? If we need it, what's it going to cost us to get it and of course in chapter 29 verses 1 to 9 david recounts how much he has given to this temple and then he he he, he it recounts how the leaders of the people of israel also gave so much to this temple and maybe you're sitting here thinking ah, ha, "Ha i know what you're going to do you're going to say that we need to give right that that religion is all about you know, if you're a skeptic here this morning, you're like, ah, yeah, 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 religion, it's a a scam. You preachers, you get up there and you talk about all these important things that God's going to give us, etc., and it's all simply a setup for you to get into my wallet. Well, listen, buddy, I'm not falling for your trick. And I appreciate that. I do. Um, There have been Christians who have certainly used The story of Christianity and the the gospel message in order to line their pockets, that's absolutely true. We call them health and wealth preachers. We call them prosperity gospel preachers, these kind of people. But I'm here to tell you, actually, that the cost is way more than money. If it was just money, it wouldn't be such a big deal. By the end of point two, you're going to be wishing it was just money. Look at verse five. Chapter 29, verse 5. So so David has recounted all that he has given, okay? And he has given a ton. I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but it's like a ridiculous amount of, of his riches. And then he says, Now, who is willing to give money to? Open up their wallets like he did? Sign a pledge form? Not at all. What does he say? He says, Who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord this day? To consecrate themselves to the Lord today. What does that mean? Well, we get actually a great definition of it at the very end of this passage in verse 19. When David is praying and he prays about his son Solomon in verse 19, he says, And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. It's that first part that gives us the definition of what it means to consecrate yourself to the Lord. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees. Here's what scripture teaches us. If if you want to Have this temple experience where you know the presence of God and experience the presence of God in your life. It means to obey him. It requires that you serve him. It requires that you give your entire life to him. And and you do that without holding anything back and without Without allowing the circumstances of your life to dictate what it is you will give to God and what it is you won't give to God, you have to drop your conditions. You cannot come to God and say, I will put my trust in you, I will believe in you, I will love you, I will follow you if you get me the relationship I've always wanted. You get me the job I'm hoping for. You keep me healthy. And don't allow my family to experience turmoil and unrest and relational difficulty. You have to take your hands off your life. You must do that or you will negate the very presence of God in your life. You will not be inviting God's presence into your life. That's what David is praying for, that that Solomon will be wholeheartedly committed to God, that he will not hold anything back, but that he will say to God, no matter what comes, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what I experience, no matter whether I get good things or bad things, everything I am, I give to you, and you are free to use it any way Only it was just money, eh? The money is just a consequence of it. It's just a manifestation of it. It's just a picture of if you have given yourself entirely to God, it's because, as David says in his prayer over and over and over again, he says, everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. This is verse 11. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. That's why they can give it away, because they know that everything they are and everything they have comes from him, and therefore it's ultimately his anyway. why is that the cost of the experience of the temple well this friends this is how love works this is how love works if if I come to you and I say okay don't sit don't I don't want you to picture me doing this so someone comes to you and says I love you and I want to marry you you go what why do you want to marry me? And what if they say, well, your trust fund excites me. (laughs) Or what if they say, I love you and I want to marry you. And you say, why do you love me and why you want to marry me? And they say, well, you know, you got a lot of connections. You know people and you have influence and you know i have some things i want to do i have a career i'm hoping to uh launch and i think it would be really really good to be able to say that i'm with you on my linkedin profile if you treat a person like a commodity like a means to an end what do they do they withdraw from you understandably They feel like they're being used. They feel like they're being dehumanized. They're being objectified. Jessica used to joke when we first uh, got married. She used to joke, well, I thought I was marrying him for his earning potential. And three weeks before we got married, because I was concerned. She's marrying me for my earning potential. So 3 weeks before we got married, I said to her, I want to go to seminary. And she didn't break it off. She knew that earning potential was not likely going to be a quality that I would have if I was going to go to seminary. Because she loved me for me. She didn't love me, you know, I'm, I'm I'm I when I When I practiced this in my head, it was a super good punchline, and you all laughed like crazy. (laughs) But the point is this. When you treat people like a commodity, they know it. And if you treat people like a means to an end, they are not going to give themselves to you because they understand that you're not really giving yourself to them. The Westminster Confession of Faith, if you want to know more, join my class, says this. There is only one living and true God. He's infinite and perfect. He's pure and invisible in spirit. He doesn't have a body or multiple parts or human passions. He does not change. He's immense, eternal, and unable to be fully understood. He's all-powerful, very wise, very holy, totally free, and absolute over everything. He works out everything from his unchanging righteous will, and for his glory, God is very loving, gracious, full of mercy, and overflowing with goodness and truth. How do you relate to a being like that? Do you ever say, I'll give myself to you, if, to a being like that? No, the only way, the only proper response is to consecrate yourself. That's the cost of a relationship with this God. Now, third thing, the fulfillment. The fulfillment of the temple, because you see, if you know your bibles you remember um, that solomon who's going to build this temple uh, he is not able to be totally consecrated to god he actually fails pretty badly uh, he starts out devoted right but he does not stay that way at all even though excuse me even though he builds the temple and when he builds the temple yes god's presence comes down but but as you continue to read the story, Solomon fails to be faithful to God. He doesn't give himself wholeheartedly to God. He gives himself to the, also to the gods of the foreign wives that he marries. And, and as the story continues, it gets worse and worse. Each, almost every uh, king that comes after is even more inclined to turn away from God and rebel him, against him and refuse to submit their themselves and the people of Israel's life to, to him to the point... Where God actually, as the people of God have wandered so far away, he removes his presence from the temple, and he actually has it destroyed. See, we, we need God's presence. But we can't do what it takes to ensure God's presence. This is the dilemma that we have. This is the problem that we have. We are not much different than the people of Israel, are we? We look around the world and we see things that are interesting and, and things that are fun and things that draw our hearts away from full devotion to God. We have, we have stuff in our lives that we say, I want to hold on to that even though I want to ha- trust in God. And we feel the tension, but the reality is, is that time after time after time, what do we do? We fall over to the side of satisfying our earthly desires rather than remaining faithful to God. You know, David said he wanted to build the temple. And God said no. Back in 1 in Chronicles, in chapter 22, listen to what it says here. This is, again, David talking. Or, sorry, this is, no, sorry. This is God speaking to David. Or, no. Oh, this is David speaking to Solomon. David says, "'My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but this word of the Lord came to me.'" So this is now God speaking to David. "'You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side.'" His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. So God calls David's son a man of peace. That's actually what the name Solomon means, right? But listen to the rest of that verse. That was... 10A, this is 10B, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. I will establish his throne, his kingdom over Israel forever. How in the world is that possible? I mean, we just said Solomon was unfaithful. How is he going to be on the throne forever? Well, centuries later, there was another man of peace, And he built the ultimate temple and his throne lasts forever. You know, there was a man who showed up at the temple in Jerusalem centuries after King David, about a thousand years later. And that, that temple was actually empty of the presence of God. There was no glory. There was no presence. And what did this man say? He said, tear down this temple and I will build it up in three days. And he was talking about himself. And his name was Jesus of Nazareth. And what was he saying when he said that? He was saying, I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the crossroads. I am the temple that bridges you over the chasm. I am the place where the sacrifice is made. How in the world could he say that? Well, because Jesus Christ is the only man who ever loved God with all of his being. The only person in history who was fully consecrated who who had wholehearted devotion to the lord he was absolutely and completely consecrated and he earned the presence of god but what did he get on that cross when he hung there with his arms wide open and god was pouring out his judgment for our sin and rebellion upon him what did he say my god my god why have you forsaken me because he was crying out at the absence of his father His blood was poured out on the mercy seat. And God turned his face away from him so that God would never turn his face away from you or me. Even though you can't give yourself fully to him. Even if in your best moments you want to give yourself fully to him, you know that there's parts of you that continue to push and pull against the sovereignty of God over your life. But in those moments, remember what the Apostle Paul said. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He got the absence that we deserve for our manipulation, for using God as a means to an end, so that we would never, ever lose that presence. The glory would never depart. And you know what? This is a lot of biblical theology to hit it, throw at you in one sermon, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's the temple of the Lord now? Where is it? Where's the place that you can know the presence of God? Where do you have to go? Jerusalem? Jerusalem? Right here, sister, you got it. It's right here. We are the temple of God. Each and every one of us, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? The thing that's standing in the way of you experiencing it is your own your own reticence, your own unwillingness to fully surrender. But the sacrifice has already been made, so all we have to do, friends, is repent. Repent and admit and turn your face towards Jesus. And you can know that presence again and always until He returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you thank you, thank you, thank you that you provide the temple the experience of the supernatural that we could know God, the one who created everything that exists the one who upholds everything that exists the one who alone can satisfy the human's longing because our longing is infinitely deep and infinitely wide but so are you Pray, Lord, that you will help us to give ourselves over more and more to you, to hold nothing back, no relationship, no amount of material gain, no amount of reputation. Take every part of us, Lord. Own it. That we might be indeed your temples of the living god for your glory we pray in jesus name amen